I'm Silas Farley. I'm a dancer with New York City Ballet, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to Hear the Dance. This episode will be part two of the New York City Ballet's history. George Balanchine immediately made Jerome Robbins a dancer and choreographer with City Ballet, and within a year, Balanchine had named him Associate Artistic Director. Upon joining the company, Robbins, known as Jerry, had already made his name in the ballet world with his smash-hit debut, Fancy Free, a ballet about three sailors on shore leave in New York City, set to music by Leonard Bernstein. He had also established himself as a Broadway choreographer, with shows like On the Town, based on Fancy Free, and High Button Shoes, for which he won his first Tony Award. Robbins' contribution to New York City Ballet would be immense, as a dancer, choreographer, associate artistic director, and ultimately even its co-ballet master-in-chief after Balanchine's death. Though Jerry's own dancing is often eclipsed by his other accomplishments, it's important to remember just how good a dancer he was. Balanchine revived his ballet Prodigal Son expressly for Robbins to dance the title role, and Balanchine choreographed new works on him as well, notably making for him the first movement lead in the ballet Bore Fantasque, cast opposite Tanniki Leclerc, or Tanny as she was known, the ballerina who had captured Jerry's imagination that first time he saw her dance. Tanny and Jerry made quite an impression in Bore Fantasque. Reviewing the opening night performance, the critic Walter Terry wrote, Leclerc and Robbins were nothing short of triumphant. Leclerc's wide and innocent eyes and her long legs projected the wit of her sequences to perfection. And Robbins was agile as a leprechaun and twice as mischievous. Robbins made a string of significant works for New York City Ballet in its early days, including The Cage, which explored the workings of a colony of female insects who kill male intruders. Afternoon of a Fawn, a sensual potida that takes place in a ballet studio, with the audience understood to be the mirror. And Jerry's great comedic ballet, called The Concert, which displays all the hilarity that goes on in the minds and bodies of the audience at a recital of Frédéric Chopin piano music. It would be that Chopin piano music that provided the bridge between Jerry's two seasons of life with City Ballet. After the concert, Jerry spent over ten years away from City Ballet, directing his own touring company and choreographing some of the greatest American musicals, including West Side Story and Fiddler on the Roof. When he finally returned to the company for good, it was in 1969, and at Lincoln Kirstein's invitation to make a new ballet for an upcoming gala performance. He again chose piano compositions by Chopin for his music. Robbins had not made a ballet in a while. He would later recall how at the start of the rehearsal process, he felt like an artist who was trying his hand again after taking a long break from drawing. But once he got going, the steps started to flow. The piece began as a potida for Edward Villela and Patricia McBride. McBride is affectionately known as Patty, and she was my teacher in my hometown of Charlotte, North Carolina. Amused to both Jerry and Balanchine, Patty was my living link to the City Ballet legacy and my inspiration to come be part of this amazing company. She's been a constant encouragement in my life since I was 10 years old. Robbins' new duet eventually grew into an hour-long ballet for 10 dancers called Dances at a Gathering. It would demonstrate at least two key aspects of Jerry's choreography. 
one. The sense that the performers are a community who dance for and with each other, not for the audience. And two, that the dancers' movements are often simply indicated, sketched in, and not danced full force. To get that subtle quality from his dancers, Jerry would often say, easy baby, easy. Dances at a Gathering was hailed as a masterpiece from its first performances. It marked the start of a nearly 30-year period in Jerry's life, during which he made almost 50 new works for City Ballet. Some highlights included the Goldberg Variations, set to Bach's monumental keyboard composition, and glass pieces to music by Philip Glass that channeled the pulsing rhythms of city life into choreography. New York City Ballet was Jerry's creative home. He revered Balanchine, who was his great choreographic influence, and he loved to work with the company's dancers, whom Balanchine had trained. George Balanchine once said, I am a teacher. That is my contribution. It was his teaching that he wanted to be remembered above all his other accomplishments. His choreography and directorship were all extensions of this role as a teacher. This is the lens through which I would like us to consider his leadership of New York City Ballet. The defining feature of the Balanchine years was the powerful unity between the studio and the stage over which he presided. Balanchine was a constant presence. He taught the morning company class, choreographed new works, rehearsed his own ballets in the ever-growing repertory, and watched nearly every performance, often observing from his favored perch in the downstage right wing. His morning company classes were the epicenter of his leadership. They were a kind of laboratory for ongoing investigation of the classical ballet language. He then built his ballets out of this vocabulary. So, the further Balanchine stretched his dancers in class, the richer a palette of colors they became for his choreography. In this process, Balanchine extended ballet technique to extremes that were firsts in the field. His class was about more, movements that were slower, swifter, higher, stronger, clearer. It was high-definition dancing, and all of it was attentive to the music. He wanted his company to get inside the music. He once described this by saying, Music is like an aquarium with the dancers inside it. It's all around you like fish moving through water. He also taught his company to subdivide musical time, articulating steps in the space between the beats. This opened up whole new worlds of music to which he could choreograph. From Baroque to jazz to electronic, Balanchine's dancers could embody any score. Perhaps the greatest lesson of his classes was his very presence in them. Ballet class is not glamorous at all. It's like brushing your teeth. Or as Balanchine sometimes said about the more arduous aspects of teaching class, it's like pulling teeth. But yet there he was in the studio, day after day, with his sleeves rolled up, doing the work. Because he knew that the only way to define his vision was to constantly refine his dancers. He was in the theater nearly the entire day, every day, and he expected from his dancers the same kind of artistic devotion that he modeled. That makes me think all the way back to Lincoln Kirstein's letter to Chick Austin, the part where he talks about how his vision for an American ballet company would require a lifestyle of service from its participants. 
And I think about how Balanchine proved to be the master who was also very much a servant, like a shepherd king, who reigned over his company for nearly 40 years. The quality and quantity of the ballets Balanchine choreographed over his tenure as City Ballet's leader is staggering. Including Orpheus, he made 115 ballets for the company, many of them gems. Time fails us to enumerate them all. We'll explore several of them at length in later episodes, but suffice it to say that he made a body of work that addressed the various needs and opportunities that the company had in any given period. In addition to being a genius, Balanchine was ever practical. He wittily summarized that by saying, My muse comes to me on union time. And so he served up one new choreography after another, like a chef satisfying a perpetually hungry clientele. Balanchine even likened an evening's performance of three separate ballets to a meal with an appetizer, entree, and dessert. His ballets also evolved with the dancers and the theater building he had at his disposal. In 1964, the company moved from the slightly cramped quarters of City Center to the spacious stage of the New York State Theater, now Coke Theater, at the newly opened Lincoln Center for the Performing Arts. Balanchine's dances similarly grew. There was now room enough for stage-filling spectacles like his ballets Jules, Union Jack, and Vienna Waltzes. Balanchine and Kirstein had the freedom to program whatever they wanted, so the repertory was comprised of almost all pieces that had been newly made for City Ballet. Most of them were by Balanchine, though he did invite guest choreographers, like the Royal Ballet's Frederick Ashton, and he encouraged choreographers from within the company, most notably Jerome Robbins. Balanchine's ballets were entertainment and education for dancers and audiences alike. A noteworthy feature of his contribution to the repertory was how it accounted for the various international schools and traditions from ballet history. For example, his ballet Scotch Symphony harkened back to the 19th century era of the Romantic Ballet, a world of sylphs fluttering on point. He riffed on the virtuosity of the Italian school in ballets like Tarantella and Ballo della Regina. In La Source, he showed the glamour of the Paris Opera Ballet. And as I mentioned earlier, he displayed the splendor of the Imperial Russian Ballet in works like Diamonds and Theme and Variations. He even made his own stagings of beloved story ballets like Swan Lake, Coppelia, and most of all, his enchanting production of The Nutcracker. I want you to closely consider this next thought. With these types of works, Balanchine was giving the United States its own vital continuity with the previous European centuries of ballet. Isn't that amazing? He also celebrated his adopted homeland by making distinctly American works like Western Symphony and Stars and Stripes. And perhaps his greatest innovation was his collection of bold black-and-white ballets, so-called for their stripped-down costuming of leotards and tights. This uniform, which Kirstein called an approximation of nudity, is what dancers normally wear in class and rehearsals. I think that's interesting because it further underscores the unity between the studio and the stage that we've been exploring. These leotard ballets were truly about seeing the bodies as they showed the music. Some of the most famous of these black-and-white works were to Igor Stravinsky's music, like Agon and Stravinsky Violin Concerto, which also happens to be this podcast's theme music. Stravinsky had this to say after watching one of Balanchine's black-and-white ballets set to his music. It was like the tour of a building for which I had drawn the plans, 
but never explored the result. What a quote. In the dazzling variety of Balanchine's works that we've touched on, we see him looking both forward and backward on the timeline of ballet history. Balanchine passed away on April 30th, 1983, at the age of 79. His death was mourned and his life memorialized across the globe. He had transformed the art of ballet. A substantial number of his 425 different works had been danced by companies around the world in his own lifetime, and his artistic philosophy had imprinted generations of dancers, teachers, choreographers, and artistic directors. Before the curtain rose on the matinee performance the day Balanchine died, Kirstein said this to City Ballet's audience. I don't have to tell you that Mr. B is with Mozart and Tchaikovsky and Stravinsky. It was a fitting remark, for Balanchine had made the same kind of titanic contribution to his art that those three composers had made to theirs. Shortly after Balanchine's death, one of his dancers wrote this reflection. Balanchine's belief and trust in music and classical ballet was absolute, and his deep motive was to assure that the classical ballet idiom would continue for generations. He had a love for both, and as ballet master, he knew he was creating the link that bound its past to its future. The dancer who wrote this was Peter Martins. Martins was born in Copenhagen and was a product of the Royal Danish Ballet. There's a connection in both Balanchine and Martin's boyhood that I find amusing. Balanchine had been dragged along to his sister's audition for the Imperial Ballet School, and Peter had been dragged along to his sister's audition for the Royal Danish Ballet School. In both cases, it was the brother and not the sister who was accepted. And thus two of history's most important ballet masters got their start. Peter's main teacher at the Royal Danish Ballet School was Stanley Williams, a former soloist with the Danish troupe, who, at Balanchine's invitation, would later become an influential faculty member at the School of American Ballet. Peter's uncle had been the first Danish dancer to dance Apollo, which Balanchine had staged for the Danish Ballet back in 1930. Martins first met Balanchine in the summer of 1967, when he was asked at the last minute to replace the injured city ballet star Jacques d'Amboise in a performance of Apollo at Scotland's famed Edinburgh Festival. This led to Balanchine inviting Martins to perform as a guest artist with city ballet, and ultimately his joining the company as a principal dancer in 1969. Martins was an exemplar of the Danish ballet style, which had been developed in the 19th century by the choreographer and ballet master August Bornenville. So he had to adapt his dancing to Balanchine's amendments and extensions of classical technique. He eventually took hold of Balanchine's precepts, and Balanchine started to make new roles for him. The first two of those ballets were Duo Concertant and Stravinsky Violin Concerto, works presented during City Ballet's epic 1972 Stravinsky Festival. Martins eventually became an anchoring company dancer, known for his pristine technique and effortless partnering. In 1976, Martins began to choreograph. His first piece was a duet called Calcium Light Night to music by Charles Ives. The dancers were City Ballet principals Heather Watts and Daniel Duell. The ballet was first performed on a gig at Brooklyn College. When Balanchine heard about how well it had been received, he asked Martins if he could see it. They arranged a time for Watts and Duell to show the piece to Balanchine. He liked what he saw and programmed the ballet for the company's next New York season. 
Calcium contained at least two elements that became distinctive markers of much of Martins's choreography. One, the use of music by an American composer, and two, the use of intricate and at times acrobatic partnering. After Calcium, Balanchine became Martins's choreographic tutor and encourager, giving him music to choreograph, suggesting dancers for him to use, making edits to Martins's dances, and even having Martins fulfill commissions that he couldn't. Eventually, Balanchine also started to entrust him with teaching the company class and assisting with casting and programming the company's seasons. When Balanchine became very ill near the end of his life and could not leave the hospital, Martins carried much of the weight of the company's leadership. Around the time of Balanchine's passing, City Ballet's board of directors appointed Martins and Jerome Robbins co-ballet masters-in-chief, with Martins overseeing much of the company's day-to-day -day work and Robbins weighing in on artistic matters and choreographing freely. The two operated in this relationship until 1990, when Robbins retired from his director role and continued on as a choreographer and superintendent of his ballets in the repertory. One of Jerry's last works for the company was his 1995 staging of the dance scenes from West Side Story. There were many layers of significance to this work entering the City Ballet repertory. Peter Martins had seen the movie version of West Side Story in Denmark, and that is why he'd fallen in love with America and dreamed of living here. That movie version of West Side Story had also been filmed in front of the very same condemned tenement buildings that were eventually torn down to build Lincoln Center, which became City Ballet's home. It was also the ultimate meeting of Jerry's two artistic worlds of Broadway and the ballet. The late 1990s saw the passing of two of City Ballet's greatest forces. On January 5th, 1996, Lincoln Kirstein passed away at the age of 88, he had been the School of American Ballet's president for 55 years and New York City Ballet's general director for 41 years. Over the course of Lincoln's long and extraordinary life, he also founded a contemporary art society at Harvard and two magazines, laid the foundation for the New York Public Library's dance collection, shaped exhibitions and acquisitions for the Museum of Modern Art, lectured at Yale, championed the work of a host of performing and visual artists, and wrote no less than 575 different books and articles on the performing and visual arts, literature, politics, and history, as well as writing his own poetry, several memoirs, and a novel. And what I just said isn't even a comprehensive list. Lincoln was a remarkable man. Through decades of tireless work, he had brought his vision for an American ballet tradition to fruition with a vibrant school, company, repertory, and audience. In this, coupled with his many pursuits outside the ballet realm, Lincoln Kirstein had been his own kind of Sergei Diaghilev, a true American impresario. On July 29, 1998, Jerome Robbins passed away at the age of 79, having made an indelible mark on the classical repertory and the American musical theater, with his nearly 70 ballets and 15 Broadway shows. His works for City Ballet had also provided a valuable complement to Balanchine's and shaped decades of the company's dancers. In many ways, City Ballet was Peter Martins's company from 1983 until his retirement in 2018. He choreographed over 80 ballets for the company, selected and developed a generation of dancers, almost all of whose training he had overseen in his other role as director of SAB. 
And he'd stewarded the performance tradition of Balanchine and Robbins' ballets into the decades beyond their lifetimes. Martins also ensured that the company did not become a museum of its legacy repertory, but rather a constantly creative organism. Under Balanchine, City Ballet had been the most creative ballet company in the world, by virtue of the sheer number of new ballets it presented. The Martins' years were no different, except that for most of them, he did not have Balanchine or Robbins to generate those new works. So, he cultivated a new generation of choreographers. And this was very much in keeping with that original Kirstein idea of a new repertory that was not bound to the conventions of the past. I think this piece of developing new choreographers and thus building a dynamic ballet repertory post-Balanchine and Robbins is the defining feature and noblest achievement of Peter Martin's tenure as City Ballet's leader. In 1989, he curated the American Music Festival, with Martins and nearly a dozen other choreographers preparing world premieres to music by American composers. Notable among that group of dance makers was William Forsyth, who revolutionized the art of ballet through his directorship of Ballet Frankfurt. Between 1992 and 2006, Martins curated showcases of new works at City Ballet called the Diamond Projects, so named because they were funded by the philanthropist Irene Diamond. And together, Martins and Diamond founded the New York Choreographic Institute in 2000. This institute is a laboratory for dance makers. Its purpose is to help classical choreographers hone their craft in a workshop setting, without the pressures of a premier or critics. The choreographers who are invited to participate have the chance to make a new ballet for either SAB students or city ballet dancers to be presented in an informal studio showing. During each session, the choreographers also participate in seminars on music, lighting, and stage design, and the choreographers attend various exhibitions and performances throughout their time in New York City. In various sessions, the choreographers either collaborate with designers who develop lighting and costume concepts, or with composers who write new dance scores. I personally think that the Institute is the crowning jewel of Peter Martin's legacy, because it's played a critical role in the formation of many of today's leading ballet choreographers, and it ensures the development of ballet's future choreographers. Three of the most notable Institute alumni are the British Christopher Wielden, the Russian Alexei Ratmansky, and the American Justin Peck. These men have substantially shaped the current city ballet repertory. Each has synthesized the strands of his own artistic lineage into a distinct choreographic voice. Wielden, a product of London's Royal Ballet, has brought the famed English choreographer Frederick Ashton's purity of line and something of the English master Kenneth Macmillan's elaborate partnering to City Ballet. In Wielden's work, we also see the influence of his time as a City Ballet dancer, working with Jerome Robbins, and dancing Balanchine's ballets. I think of Wielden's angular polyphonia and his sublime After the Rain as excellent examples of his Anglo-American style. Having first come to City Ballet as a dancer, Wilden eventually started to choreograph full-time for the company, even serving as its first-ever resident choreographer. Alexei Ratmansky was trained at Moscow's Bolshoi Ballet, where he later became director, and danced in Canada's Royal Winnipeg Ballet and the Royal Danish Ballet. In his choreography, we see a striking theatricality flowing out of the rich traditions of mime and storytelling in both Moscow and Copenhagen coupled with a technical virtuosity that combines the space-devouring power of the Bolshoi with the articulation of the Royal Danes. 
All of that is then wedded together with Ratmansky's own sensitive musicality, more often than not in response to the works of Russian composers. Powerful demonstrations of his aesthetic include Concerto DSCH and pictures at an exhibition. Justin Peck is thoroughly American, a product of Balanchine and Kirstein's SAB city ballet system. Educated through observing and participating in the Balanchine Robbins repertory, Peck has devised ballets that are remarkable for their architectural and kaleidoscopic use of the corps de ballet and a captivating athleticism. He has skillfully combined the choreographic structure of Balanchine with the palpable communal sense of Robbins. Having actively danced in the company up until this past season, Peck also has a knowledge of his dancers that is born from years of close, shared work. Some of his emblematic ballets are the Boundless Rodeo, four dance episodes, and the large scale Everywhere We Go. Since 2014, he has served as City Ballet's second resident choreographer. It's also fun to mention that both Wielden and Peck have followed in Jerome Robbins' footsteps by becoming Tony Award-winning Broadway choreographers, Wielden with An American in Paris and Peck with The Revival of Carousel. And there's another Robbins resonance. While we tape this very episode, Justin Peck is filming his choreographic contribution to the forthcoming Steven Spielberg, Tony Kushner remake of West Side Story. I think it's also important for us to note that in the same way Balanchine and Robbins' ballets became standard fare for companies around the world, so the works of Wielden, Ratmansky, and Peck have come to enjoy a similarly international life. In this way, City Ballet has generated more of the repertory that the rest of the world dances than any other company. That's a beautiful and generous legacy. In an interview he gave a few years before his retirement, Peter Martins was asked if he felt burdened by the Balanchine heritage, to which he responded, No, it's a privilege. I am the messenger, the link. I think it's interesting how Peter used that word link. It's the same word he'd used 30 years before when writing about the way Balanchine was situated in ballet's history. And that makes me think even further back to this quote, that Martins very likely knew from the 19th century Danish ballet master August Bornenville. All dancers ought to regard their laborious art as a link in the chain of beauty. Like Bornenville and Balanchine and Robbins before him, Martins had provided that artistic link from one generation to the next, and he had ensured the continuity of the American ballet tradition that Kirstein and Balanchine had built. On January 1st, 2018, Martins retired from his post as Ballet Master-in-Chief. He had served the SAB City Ballet Enterprise for nearly 51 years, beginning as a dancer and finishing as the sole leader. The period that followed saw the company run by an interim artistic team made up of Justin Peck and three ballet masters, Rebecca Crone, Craig Hall, and Jonathan Stafford. Stafford served as the team's leader. I find it interesting that this was at least the third time in City Ballet's history that the company was run by a team. In 1956, when Balanchine was away from the company, a team that consisted of ballet mistress Vita Brown and dancers Todd Bollander and Francisco Mancion had led the company. And in the era from Balanchine's illness and death through 1990, Peter and Jerry had shared the leadership. In February of 2019, another team took the helm. Jonathan Stafford was named Artistic Director of New York City Ballet and the School of American Ballet. 
and former City Ballet principal Wendy Whalen was named the company's Associate Artistic Director. And Justin Peck was also named Artistic Advisor, in addition to his role of resident choreographer. Stafford received his early ballet training at Central Pennsylvania Youth Ballet in Carlisle, his hometown. After Stafford completed his training at SAB, he joined City Ballet, where he rose to the rank of principal dancer. He was known for his clean technique and sure partnering. He became a teacher at SAB while still dancing, and, upon retiring from the stage, joined City Ballet's team of ballet masters. Wendy Whalen had received her early training at the Louisville Ballet in her native Kentucky, completed her training at SAB, where she performed her first Balanchine Ballet on the very day he died in 1983. She then joined City Ballet, where she danced for 30 years and was one of the company's anchoring ballerinas, known as both a deft interpreter of the Balanchine Robbins canon and as a muse to that generation of choreographers that Martins developed. She was memorably featured in many of Wielden's ballets and originated a leading role in every Ratmansky ballet he made during her years in the company. This fall season marks both the start of City Ballet's 71st year and its first full season with Stafford and Whalen as directors. And thus, Kirstein and Balanchine's great American ballet tradition enters its next chapter. Wow. We have covered a lot of ground in our time together. I hope that you've enjoyed this journey and that you've gained something valuable. I encourage you to re-listen to sections you found compelling and check out the reading list to learn more. To stay up to date on all City Ballet podcast episode releases, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast directory. All of us here at City Ballet hope to see you soon in the theater, so head over to nycballet.com to have a look at the season. On our next episode of Hear the Dance, we will explore a Jerome Robbins ballet called Opus 19, The Dreamer, which is set to Prokofiev's first violin concerto, and I'll be joined by some very special guests. You won't want to miss it. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you'll join me again to Hear the Dance.